Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And we are here the week of August 1st through August 4th. It is, you know, we have the dog days of summer, Carson. Uh, these are the, you know, the grumpy days of summer. The growly days. Yeah, nobody wants to go back to school. Nobody wants. Summer's ending, but we don't have football yet. Farmers have been in the field. There's that terrible gap. Yeah, true. Yeah. (laughs) Pivot tires are going flat. (laughs) Everybody is just grumpy and at each other. We need some special holiday time. I think there needs to be like a two-week holiday. Yeah. Early August. Yeah, or that, yeah. What's that? Well, there's that one at September where they labor. We need another labor. We need a pre-labor day. We need a a a pre-labor week. Pre-labor week. (laughs) We need a pre-school week. That's what it should be. A pre-labor week. But uh, my wife is super excited. The kids are going to go back to school. Get them out. Get them out of the house. I just need peace. uh, I'm visualizing her just kicking them out the door gently, of course. Yes, yes, of course. Hey, go fly, little birdies. Enjoy. Yes. Go, go, go. (laughs) Let's start with the ex parte summary for this week. Nebraska Supreme Court. What do we got, Carson? Okay, so we start with State v. Ezel, and this is Judge Recusal. This is... 407 North 117th Street, LLC, versus Harper and McGill. Uh, hashtag, uh, it's Pierce the Corporate Veil, Summary Judgment. Karras uh, versus Karras, motion to alter or amend. All right, fantastic. Let's start with the Nebraska Supreme Court. Go Carson. All right, so we start with State v. Ezel, and this is an appeal from a plea-based conviction, and the issue on appeal is... Um, whether or not basically a judge should have recused themselves and um, what leads to this happening. And I will go through just briefly. The procedure is that um, Ezel uh, had a run in with law enforcement where a police officer ends up being shot. And the big issue is that the judge who is presiding over this matter has a spouse who is a Douglas County deputy sheriff. And so essentially, as was saying that because this was a shooting of law enforcement in Douglas County, uh, there's basically an implicit bias that you're not going to be able to preside over this um, impartially. And so uh, you should recuse yourself. And so as first starts with um, an attempted inter- interlocutory appeal uh, that the uh, Court of Appeals denies. Uh, he then appeals that appeal or dismissal or um, refusal to uh, hear that appeal to the Supreme Court, who then uh, does the same. And so basically what happens is Ezel then has a no contest uh, plea and uh, sentencing. Uh, and now this is coming based on that uh, plea. And what the state first argues is that the no contest pleas waived uh, any argument of uh, recusal and that that should have happened. And the Supreme Court deals with that pretty handily and says that a party cannot waive the disqualification of a judge due to the judge's personal bias or prejudice towards the party or the party's lawyer. It is a necessary component of due process. And so you can't just waive that by entering a no contest plea. And so they're able to address this on appeal. And then they go through essentially what impartiality means and how you can disqualify Qualify that, And here they say impartial means the absence of, absence of bias or prejudice in favor of or against a particular party or class of parties. A judge must recuse himself or herself from a case if the judge's impartiality might reasonably questioned, which can occur even in the absence of a of an enumerated circumstances of an enumerated circumstance. And the question essentially is whether a reasonable person who knew the circumstances of the case would question the judge's impartiality. And the big 
issue here is that the defendant uh, seeking to disqualify the judge on the basis of bias or prejudice bears the heavy burden of overcoming the presumption of impartiality. So you have to overcome that we look at judges as being impartial in general. And so what the Supreme Court says here is that they um, find that a judge... um, cannot be disqualified as a matter of law whenever a victim of a crime has commonalities with someone in the judge's family. And so basically they're saying here that um, just just because your family member might have been connected to the facts of something or just because you might share something in common with a victim, um, a judge does not have to recuse him or herself under every one of those uh, circumstances. And so absent a direct personal connection to the proceeding, the disqualification is not required as a matter of law. And therefore here there was no abuse of discretion. Um, and the same thing with the sentencing, no abuse, of, no abuse of discretion, and the Supreme Court affirmed. All right, 407 North 177th, 17th Street, LLC. A mouthful of an LLC uh, versus Harper and McGill. So the LLC here, 407, is a landlord and brought an action against a commercial tenant um, for a uh, for non-payment of rent. Now the tenant here was a entity called uh, Planet Group. Planet Group was. of Planet Group was owned by the defendants Harper and McGill's other corporation, um, and they were a secured creditor of Planet Group, which was the tenant of the 407 LLC. Lost yet? I was too. Uh, The plaintiff got a judgment by default against the defendant Planet Group uh, for non-payment of rent, so they got this judgment, uh, some six-figure judgment, $714,000 in change. And they further, they were unable to collect um, so the, from the Planet Group. So what they decided to do is bring an action against the shareholders of this other entity that was owned, uh, that owned a lot of the Planet Group that they had the judgment against. So they raised this issue and the, uh, against Harper and McGill, who are the shareholders of this secured creditor and uh, other entity that owned 90% of the shares of Planet Group, and Harper and McGill move for summary judgment. And in their summary judgment, they say that uh, they are not uh, part of the formation of the contract. They were not part of the formation of Planet Group. There is enough, basically, uh, distance between them and Planet Group um, it, through no execution of the lease. They weren't uh, present for the execution of the lease, and they weren't ex- uh, present for the execution of the lease option. So there's enough distance between them and Planet Group that you can't pierce the corporate veil for some kind of fraud or otherwise to try and get uh, collect uh, on this judgment against them personally. And there were there's some summary judgment language here. You might just skip over this if you were just going to read it. But if you have a summary judgment and you're worried about, well, the burden is actually on the other party that's not moving for summary judgment to prove something. What do I need to do to show that they're either not going to be able to prove it or that I can prove that they can't prove it, uh, which is a, a mouthful. But there's some standards here that are brought forth in this case that apply uh, across the board for all summary judgments. So this isn't just a pierce the corporate veil case. It's more of a summary judgment case. But anyway, on appeal, um, 
from the district court, which granted the summary judgment and said that they're, uh, they weren't able to pierce the corporate veil. You have to assume the corporate veil may be pierced, uh, through a reach of a non-shareholder. So that's the assumption that this case makes, um, which did what didn't exist previously because you weren't able to go to a, a, a shareholder or a non-shareholder through piercing the corporate veil. Now, the application here is they apply the Clark v. Shields uh, summary judgment standards, which we went through a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago, and then they um, applied those standards to this case, and they said that um, we have previously explained that conclusions based on guess, speculation, conjecture, or choice of possibilities do not create material issues of fact for the purpose of summary judgment. The evidence must be sufficient to support an inference in the non-movement's favor without the fact finder engaging in guesswork. So it's very, you can't just like make a speculative, uh, speculative assumption or speculative fact to say, oh, well, they can't prove that in order to get out of the summary judgment. Um, that's, that's something that you have to go to. So here it was affirmed the denial of the summary judgment, the denial of piercing the corporate veil was affirmed and, uh, they're stuck with the judgment they can't do much with. Okay. All right, with this case, um, I'm going to try to boil down some facts, and we'll see how that goes. So, Karras versus Karras here, uh, what happened is the district court entered a stipulated decree of dissolution of marriage based on a written agreement between the husband and wife. Um, and then after finding that there was inaccurate information during settlement agreements, um, the district court granted the husband's motion to alter and amend. Um, then the district court again um, alters and amend amends after wife's motion and at that point in time uh, the court recalculated the division of property and limited alimony um, an alimony award to 15 years and the husband appealed and so i'm going to go through these facts quickly just to boil them down and make them as as uh, easy to understand as it possibly can be uh, so what happens originally is that the husband is awarded 100 percent of or the wife is uh, awarded 100 percent of her military disability and then um, her pension military pension is split 50 50 between um, the husband and the wife and so basically what that results in is the husband being paid two thousand sixty three dollars a month uh, which represented 50 percent of the wife's monthly payment received from the defense finance accounting service and basically what happens here is that in uh, 2021 the husband receives a letter denying his application because the entire amount of the wife's uh, retired retainer pay is based on disability and therefore there are no uh, funds available for payment. And so after January of 2021, uh, the wife stops paying the husband the $2,063 a month. And basically what happens on the um, husband's motion uh, is that the court finds that the wife had been uh, being dishonest in order to turn her pension all into disability and so therefore the court uh, orders her to pay the equivalent in alimony um, to the the husband well after that the wife uh, files a motion to amend and alter um, in order to limit the amount or the duration of those alimony payments to uh, 15 years or to a, a duration, and the court finds that it is limited uh, to 15 years. And on appeal, uh, basically, the court is going through whether or not um, the court erred in the recalculation of the property and then in limiting the alimony. And 
essentially what they come to is that uh, there wasn't an issue of reasonableness from the district court limiting that alimony to 15 years because the fact that the husband uh, had a bachelor's degree, he could have been working, even though he took time off of work to care for the children, um, and even though his uh, career was interrupted by him staying home with the kids, there was evidence that uh, he could have been able to work and that he was working, and so there was probably not going to need to be a lifetime alimony. And so uh, even though there was an error um, in the wife originally lying about um, the, the certain facts that she had in order to turn her pension into all disability and they agreed with the awarding of the alimony, they did not find error in limiting that alimony to a scope of only 15 years. And so uh, this is one of those cases as far as modification and alimony and overlapping with military. And anytime we see uh, military disability and some of those things, it, it really complicates these divorce cases. So it's one of those to take a glance at. Uh, but after uh, reviewing that, the Supreme Court affirmed. All right. And now we're down to the Court of Appeals and it's back to you, Carson, right? Yeah. So we kick it off at Ott v. Lammers. And this is an appeal um, from a contempt order for failure to pay child support. And the interesting thing on appeal here is that uh, Mr. Lammers was actually um, attacking the underlying child support orders, not the um, or not the contempt orders. And so what the Court of Appeals finds is that um, because Lammers was attacking the underlying child support orders, which came from South Dakota, they were a collateral attack. And so the only way to attack that collaterally was to uh, essentially allege that that judgment was void. And so there had to be an issue with uh, either personal jurisdiction or subject matter jurisdiction. He was not able to attack those areas. And therefore, since it was a collateral attack and an improper collateral attack, uh, the Court of Appeals affirmed. Okay, I had State v. and I'm going to mess this up, but uh, Chikurian, uh, State v. Chikurian. This is a uh, individual was convicted of uh, attempted sex trafficking to gain a benefit, and he was sentenced to 25 to 35 years, or excuse me, three to three years on each one of those charges. There were two counts of that, and then he was also convicted of sexual assault and sentenced to 25 to 35 years. He alleged ineffective assistance of counsel for failing to properly communicate with him during the course of things. And because the allegation was, well, if he would have communicated with me better, I would have known more about what was being alleged. And therefore I would have not taken the plea deal. Um, there was also an allegation that he failed to depose, um, certain individuals who could have, uh, helped his case. And there was also an allegation, an assignment of error here of excessive sentence. So on the communication piece for excessive, uh, ineffective assistance of counsel, there isn't an issue really. Um, the communication doesn't necessarily mean innocence. And he went through a colloquy with the district court, um, upon, uh, entering his plea that basically negated that and said, I've actually, uh, had enough uh, conversations with my attorney and there's nothing my attorney should have done that I didn't tell him to do. And I've told my attorney everything, all those kinds of questions were done at the time the uh, sentence was, or the um, conviction was entered. So it negates that. And the and additionally, the failure to depose does the same thing. An excessive sentence was uh, not very fruitful because uh, the sentences were all within the statutory range. So everything was affirmed uh, after they were affirmed and there was no abuse of discretion. So everything was affirmed. 
Okay, next case we come to is in re interest of Anthony W. Um, and then also state of Nebraska versus Anthony w, w. And what this is is an appeal um, from the transfer of a juvenile case from the Lancaster Juvenile Court, Lancaster County Juvenile Court, to uh, the uh, Criminal County Court. And this is another one of those cases where uh, we're judging factors and um, whether or not it's a, an abuse of discretion uh, to transfer. And the brief facts here are that um, this individual was charged with uh, possessing a firearm. They were found after um, a juvenile arrest warrant was issued to have a handgun, a 9mm handgun with 12 rounds in it, a uh, bulbous glass pipe that contained um, a bag of uh, methane well a uh, bulbous glass pipe and then a container that contained uh, 0.4 grams of methamphetamines and so again this is another one of those cases where we go through uh, all of the factors um, including uh, motivation for the offense uh, the uh, juveniles um, willingness to accept treatment what kind of treatments available previous history uh, best interests and all those factors and uh, here the court of appeals found uh, no abuse of discretion in the county court granting the motion to or the juvenile court granting the motion to transfer the case to county court and they affirm state v honing schmidt uh, this is another juvenile transfer case uh, the individual here was ultimately uh, charged with aiding and abetting first-degree murder. Um, he was 16 years and four months, which I've noticed that that's kind of how we delineate things uh, when we're talking about juvenile transfer cases is how many months um, they were uh, in these ages. So 16 years and four months at the time that the murder took place. Um, it was the victim of the murder was the defendant's girlfriend's 70-year-old father who was found stabbed to death. Um, this is a sad case. Uh, the defendant here, uh, Mr. Uh, Honigschmidt, had a horrible upbringing uh, in treatment since the age of 10, just bouncing around, uh, psychological study after psychological study. And this, this case kind of reads like a little psychological study um, about you know how tragedy ultimately ended in this individual being stabbed. But Lincoln Regional Center looked at him, said he would benefit from rehabilitation. The district court, however, said because of the seriousness of the offense and some other factors after uh, uh, going through all the factors, said there was a sound basis for retaining jurisdiction in criminal court. So they did not transfer. Uh, the Court of Appeals here went through the alphabet factors, found no abuse of discretion, and affirmed. I think that's it. That's it for this week. What a what a great time. Let's go. Let's try to be happy. Yeah. Even when things yeah, stay are, upbeat, even in the even know, when everybody else is, is hot down, down mad. To hot, mad. School's back. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> God, it seems like we were just saying, you know, school's out for summer. You know, it was. we were just throwing papers in the air. June and July lasted about two hours. Yep. And uh, now here we are, man. So now we have a month before Nebraska football depresses us. Isn't, all. No, that's the, hey, that's that's the silver lining to this is once August kicked by, I'm like, there's going to be football. At the yeah, end of the there's month. football. There's just, something to look forward my to. My Saturday morning is yeah. going to have a little game day. Well, on. that's true. Yeah, there'll be a little bright spot. Little bright spot. Hey, look at us looking on, putting on a happy face. Yeah, just putting it on. Well, this is uh, Point Two Law Review brought to you by Anderson Klein Brewster and Brandt with the offices in Holdridge, Minden, and Kearney. Uh, that's it. Go back to episode one for the disclaimer. That's it for this week. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Sometimes I wonder what I'm going to do, but there ain't no cure for the summertime blues.